This morning again to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 18 and 19. I was hoping to get through 21, but there's simply too much here, and uh, we're not in a hurry. So uh, we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. I'm sure have noticed that we do put the uh, words up here on the screen. We've done that, began doing that primarily for people who maybe got kids in your your lap and it's hard to hold your Bible. I would just encourage you to bring your Bible, uh, whether it be on your phone or, uh, you know, like they used a book type thing like this. Bring your Bible. That way you can mark it up. You can have it open as, you're, as we're reading through it. Uh, you can uh, make little notes and, and uh, make these, these, these truths your own in that special way. So I just want to encourage you in that. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading at verse 18, and read, we'll read through verse 21. Paul writes this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Oh, Father, now we come before your holy word, your inspired and inerrant, infallible word. We thank you, Lord, that this word is life. It's healing. We thank you, Lord God, that it's your desire today to to draw our hearts to Yourself and to convict those who are in sin, to comfort those who are uh, confused or just weighed down by the trials of life or by the reality of their own sin. Oh God, may we see Jesus now with, with clear eyes, the eyes of faith. We pray in His name. Amen. One of the uh, most dramatic stories in the New Testament is the story of Peter walking on water found in Matthew 14. Uh, you know the story. Uh, the, the disciples are out on their boat. It's nighttime. Jesus has remained behind to pray. And, uh, and yet they're out in the middle of the lake and suddenly they see this figure walking on the water and it's Jesus. Uh, and uh, Peter, in, a, in an enthusiastic burst of determination and faith, decides to join him. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And so Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water and he came to Jesus. But if you remember the story, as he neared Jesus, we're told in the text that he, he noticed the wind and the waves, and he probably remembered that he didn't know how to swim, and he became afraid, and he began to sink. Well, I think that experience is not unique to Peter. I think many of us have similar sorts of experiences in our Christian life. Have you ever walked out of a, uh, a conference or a Sunday service absolutely filled with faith and joy in Christ? You, you could not have possibly been more confident uh, of who Jesus was and all that he's accomplished. And, and so you stepped out of the boat of that Sunday, that conference, and you began to walk through the week of your life. And by Wednesday afternoon, as you were facing the winds of adversity and the waves of your sin, you find yourself 
sinking in doubt and despair. And you wonder what happened to all the confidence and the joy that I had just three days ago. How do we grow in our faith? How do we grow in our assurance so that we can experience on Wednesday the same confidence and joy that we had on Sunday? That, that no matter what we face in life, we find that in our heart there is peace and joy. Well, the answer to that question is how do you do that is, is found in our text this morning. You see, because the doctrine of justification is not just the essential theological truth of the gospel, it's the essential experiential truth. When we say it's in the essential theological truth, what we mean is that if you get justification wrong, you get the gospel wrong. It's a different gospel altogether. And justification is also a core experiential truth of the gospel, because if you get justification wrong, you're not going to experience the joy and peace that, that God promises to us in believing. And so that's precisely why Paul is just taking his time and laboring to help us to, to grasp the full glory of this doctrine of justification. He, if you remember, started back in 321, and he's been expounding ever since this wonderful truth that God, the righteous holy God, has made a way for sinners like you and me to be declared innocent of all of our sin and righteous in His sight, all as a free gift of grace because of the sacrifice of Christ. And so Paul's been just, this is all happens by faith, not by, our, not by our efforts, not by our work. This is a gift God gives to those who believe so that no matter how great your sin, and it's far greater than you think or know, no matter how great your sin, by faith alone, we can receive as a free gift the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and on the basis of that righteousness declared just, innocent, righteous in the sight of God. That's what we're looking at. That's what Paul is talking about. And as I said, the, the, the truths here are crucial for our assurance in the gospel. This is, this is where the, the gospel becomes firm foundation under our feet. This is where our pressing questions are answered. How is it that God can treat me as perfectly righteous when I know I'm not close to righteous? How can he do that in truth? I've heard it. I, I kind of believe it. But how does it work? How can it happen? How can God continue to love me unwaveringly even when I fail continually? I believe it. I've been told it. But, but how can I experientially be convinced of it? So that I know that the smiling face of God is upon me not just when I'm riding the crest of a religious experience, but when I'm in the trough of my sinful worst. How can I be sure of grace then and favor there? Well, this morning, Paul answers those questions as he points us to the obedience of the one man. That's the title of our message, the obedience of the one man. You see, the, the truth here is that no matter how mountainous our sin, or how shrill the accusations of the devil or your own conscience, 
Nothing can change the fact that Jesus was perfectly obedient and God, by a miracle of grace, has given Jesus and all his perfection to you and for you so that the rock beneath our feet is the obedience of that one man. Paul just wants to hold up before us that beautiful thing, the obedience of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ. We stand eternally, constantly in the Father's love and grace because we stand in that man, Jesus. Let's, uh, before we jump into our verses, just remember the context here. Paul is in a section here from verses 12 through the end of the chapter where he's, he's talking about things we don't think about that often. Um, you don't hear talked about in the general evangelical church world. But it's essential to understanding the gospel, where Paul holds up these two men, Adam and Christ, representative heads of the human race. Adam, the representative head of all that are uh, naturally born descendants of men, and, and uh, all who die, because Adam's sins, right? Paul's talked about that. Adam's sin has brought disobedience and death into the world, so as in Adam, all die. That's what Adam stands for. But on the other hand, we have Christ here who is a representative head of those who have been justified by faith and who gain eternal life through the obedience of Christ. So Adam, disobedience, death, Christ, obedience, life. That's verse 12, 13, 14. In 15 through 17, he starts comparing and contrasting the trespass of Adam and the free gift of God in Jesus. Right? It's not like this or Paul will say it's like. He's comparing and contrasting. The trespass and the free gift. The trespass brings condemnation and death. The free gift brings righteousness and life. Well, now in verse 18 and 19, Paul is going to sort of wrap up the conversation. Because if you notice, he is in verse 18 completing a sentence he began in verse 12, or completing a thought he began in verse 12. If you have your Bible, just notice verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? He started a comparison here, just as, and if he had continued, the, the, the sentence would continue on, so also righteousness entered the world through one man and life through righteousness, right? Sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. Righteousness came into the world through one man, and life through obedience. That's how he would have completed the thought. But he got distracted. That's why there's a hyphen at the end of verse 12. And now he's going to go on in verses 13 and 14 all the way through 17 and, and start comparing and contrasting these two men and the results of their acts. But now in verse 18, he picks that very same thought up again. And so... Begin, the, the first part of verse 18 is almost identical to verse 12. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, same thing he said in verse 12, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He's finally completed the thought and wraps up the discussion. It's a very straightforward statement. You just see the contrast here. One trespass, condemnation, for all men, one act of righteousness, justification, and life. We talked about the one act 
uh, well, the one trespass extensively last week, how Adam's one act of disobeying God brought the entire world into collapse, into moral decay and failure, where, where as Adam stands as the, as the representative head and as Adam rebels against God, rebels against the command of God, God's just response to Adam's sin is the, uh, the curse that's placed upon the whole world. It's a just sentence. And Paul's been very persistent and clear in, in just making us see Adam, the representative head, and everything that comes from him. Disobedience, death for all men. And the reason Paul wants us to see Adam and to see that our plight is not just because of our personal activity, but our plight is directly and irrevocably connected to Adam's fall and us belonging to Adam. Adam's our problem. I remember um, when dad was, uh, the day before he died, and dad was uh, mentally with it right until the end, and, but he was, uh, I went to see him uh, the day before he died, and, and um, he was awake, um, and he, he couldn't quite figure out what was happening. And so he said, what happened to me, Dale? What happened? And I, I kind of chuckled and I said, Dad, Adam happened. <laughs> that's what happened. And that's, that's the truth. Adam happened. And out of that comes all the, all the, everything you see happening in the world that's wrong flows out of what Adam did and our identity with him. But that's, you see, Paul is pounding that home because, because he wants us to see that whereas this is true, the same principles now work in reverse when it comes to Jesus Christ. And that the gospel is not just about God doing something specifically for you, but, but God, uh, like forgiving your sin, but, but God uniting you to this other man and all that he has accomplished and all that belongs to him, which means justification and life. Paul wants us to see what Jesus is to us. As this second representative. So he says, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. I like how the NIV has it. The result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. That's a, that's a nice way of saying it. The result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. That, that phrase is at the core of the gospel. Again, it answers the most fundamental questions that you could ask as a mortal man. How can I be made right with God? You cannot ask a more significant question. How can I escape the death and condemnation that I deserve both by virtue of my own sin and my identity with Adam? How do I escape that? And how can I be made right with God? If we want to ask more, more theologically, the, the specific question Paul is addressing is, what is the ground of justification? What's the ground? On what basis can God declare wicked sinners like you and me innocent and righteous in his sight? It's a very important question. The general consent of uh, most Christians in America today is that God can do this because he's God. He can just do whatever he wants to do. So if God just wants to say, you're righteous, well, nothing is impossible with God. He's just free to do that. Well, there's a host of problems with that view. The primary one being, 
No, he can't. Not if he's holy and righteous. It is, it is evil. If you think of any judge uh, who has, any judge has the authority, doesn't he, just to say to a guilty man, you're innocent? No one can say you don't have the authority to do that. He does have the authority to do that, but he doesn't have the moral right to do it. You can't tell guilty men that they're innocent just because you want to. That's a violation of justice. Well, God is no wicked judge. And so the question just comes back then, on what, on what ground can he tell you you're righteous? What is the basis of that declaration? And the answer is, Paul gives it twice, verse 18 and 19, the one act of righteousness. That's the ground, verse 18. The obedience of the one man, verse 19. The entire ground of our justification is the obedience and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we have to be clear about that because we are inveterate syncretists in this. We synthesis. We, we, like, to, we like to assume that our standing before God is, is a composite made up of what Jesus has done for us and what we're seeking to do for Jesus. So Jesus obedience and my efforts at obedience. And those two things come together and that makes up the ground for God's favor and our standing with God. And then we wonder why, you see, why we suffer from fear and, and lack assurance. This composite we've made is rotted. It's like, it's like bad, it's a bad metal that you've, you've put two things together that don't work together. And so you've got, it looks like metal, but it's just weak and fragile. It's not going to hold. The, the reason we're, we doubt isn't because we doubt God is able or that Jesus' obedience is significant, sufficient even. We believe that's true, but we've just melded the sufficiency of Christ with our own efforts, and then, and then we recognize our efforts are not going that well. And there's all kinds of reasons the devil will come along and say, but look at this and this and this and this, and what are you going to say? He's absolutely right. You fail in a thousand ways. So we have to be clear that you see the entire basis on which God declares us to be innocent is the obedience of the one man. That, that perfect obedience of Jesus Christ is the objective rock of righteousness on which we stand. That is the rock of our assurance. That's the rock upon which our justification and eternal life rests. It's wonderful. Now, some commentators will debate, what does Paul mean when he talks about one act of obedience? And some say, well, he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And, and that's certainly Paul has that in mind, but I don't believe it's all he has in mind. And the reason, you see, is because the cross, while the cross was certainly the culminating and crowning act of obedience... The cross is significant and beneficial to us only because Jesus actively obeyed his Father every single moment of his life. The battle for our salvation did not begin at Calvary. The battle for our salvation began when he was born. When Jesus committed himself right, to obedience at every moment, every single day, resisting sin, resisting temptation, 
You see, friends, the gift that Jesus offered up on the cross to the Father was the gift of his obedient life, his perfect, sinless life. The daily, active obedience of Jesus should be so precious to you, and it is, it's the foundation for our hope in life and our assurance in death. Many of you know J. Gresham Machen, founder of the uh, OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, 1937, January 1. He was dying of pneumonia in North Dakota. And uh, the day he died, he was slipping in and out of consciousness, but he, at one point in a moment of clarity, dictated a telegram to be sent to his dear friend John Murray. And these were literally his last words. This is what the telegram said. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. No hope without it. And, and eternal life because of it. The, right, as Paul says, the result, the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. Now let me just quickly deal with that phrase, all men. Because there have been some who have taught uh, the idea of universal salvation, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And here he talks about death comes to all men through Adam and life comes to all men through Jesus, right? The result of one act is justification that brings life to all men. Is Paul saying that everyone is saved? There are people who, who will teach that. Well, very quickly, that's just where you have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. What does the Bible as a whole say? And you realize quickly that Paul can't be saying that every single human person is going to be saved because that contradicts what Jesus says. Contradicts what you find all through Scripture. But Jesus, remember, talks about sheep and goats. And he talks about people, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to be put in a place uh, of outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus does not believe everyone's going to be saved. And so if we believe this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit and without error, and that it does not contradict itself, which it, it cannot because God cannot lie, well, then Paul can't be saying that. But if you read Paul himself, you realize Paul has no intent of saying that all, every person individually is, is saved um, because Paul's gospel is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that it is by faith that the gift of salvation comes. Look at 3.22. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And that was the message of the New Testament church. It was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So what does Paul mean when he says that... Uh, as in everyone, just as everyone dies in Adam, so everyone who is in Christ was made alive. Well, listen to John Murray. He says, what the apostle is interested in showing is the parallel that exists between the way of condemnation and the way of justification. It is, it is the modus operandi that is in view. All who are condemned are condemned because of the one trespass of Adam. All who are justified are justified because of the righteousness of Christ. The question, of course, then you see is, who are you in? Are you in Adam? Because you were born there. You didn't have to do anything to get there. Are you in Adam today, or are you, by faith, in Christ today? 
It's the determinative fact of your eternal destiny. Well, let's continue to move here. And uh, as we move forward into verse 19, we're going to look now at the fruit of justification. We looked at the ground of it, the obedience of Christ. Now what's the fruit? Well, here again, you have the two parallel effects, uh, the parallel effects of two federal heads, Adam and Christ. Verse 19, for as by the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, so excuse me, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And I just want to focus just for a moment on that phrase, made sinners and made righteous. Because we might assume that Paul is saying something about our moral character. In Adam, we become bad people, and, and in Christ, we become good people. Well, that's somewhat true, but that's not what Paul is saying here. The word here, uh, translated as made, does not signify an internal change of character, but an external change of status or position. So quickly, an illustration. If you're in the military and uh, you are made a major or a captain or a general even, if they make you a general, nothing's happened internally, but you have, you've come to a new status, a new position with new responsibilities and privileges. And, and it's that status that Paul is speaking of. So in Adam, all mankind come into the category, the status of sinners, that's what it means to be in Adam. You've, you've been made sinners in Adam. And, and everything that belongs to that category, death, disobedience, condemnation, you're in that category. Those things belong to you and you belong to it. Right? You're in the category of sinners. The, the wonder of the gospel, friends, is that in Jesus Christ, you're taken out of that category and you are brought into a new category the category of righteous. By the one man's obedience, you've been placed in this new category of righteous and subject then to all the blessings that God, that accrues to that category. Life, favor, grace, peace. And, and let me show you why this matters. We've said, we've said in, before that justification is a declaration. It's not God doing something necessarily to you. It's God declaring that you are no longer guilty under the law. It's, it's an official, legal, for once for all time, declaration by God, innocent for you. But that declaration is also constitutive. It changes something. If, you go, if you're an orphan and you go to the courtroom and the judge says, adopted... That's not just a legal reality. That is constitutive of a, of a new life for you. You now belong to a family. Well, justification works like that. It's not just God's declaration that you're innocent of all charges, but it is God officially removing you from this category and officially declaring that you're part of this category. So Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Jesus gets put in the category of sinner. So that in him, we may become the righteousness of God. We get put in the category of righteous. Now, why does it matter? Well, it matters for a number of reasons. Let me give you a critical one. It matters for your identity as a Christian. 
You see, to, to be a Christian does not just mean that God has forgiven you your sin. It means that you are now defined by the righteousness of Christ so that you are no longer considered a sinner even though you still sin. Let me explain that. It's very important. There is an unhelpful tendency that I, I grew up in the Dutch reform world right here in West Michigan. And if you asked me, you know, to sort of define myself, the, the, I knew that the right answer was, I'm a sinner. Right? And you've heard people say, we're just all sinners. Well, yes and no, and mostly no. Do we all sin? Absolutely. We all sin. But if you've come to Christ, the Bible says you are no longer designated as a sinner, you see, in Adam. That's why Paul never begins a single letter with the words, to all the sinners in Ephesus, to all the sinners in Corinth. He never does, not a single time. How does he start? What does he say? To all the saints in Ephesus and all the saints in Corinth. He's not trying to be nice. He's not just being, you know, giving you a bone. We all know it's not really true, but hopefully you can get there someday. To all the saints... It's where in Romans 1 7, we read it for the benediction. To those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, that does not mean that God says, Hey, sainthood is over here, and I'm calling you. Right, right now you're over there, and I'm calling you over here. No, no, no. What it means is God has called you sovereignly before the foundation of the world to be made saints, righteous. That's your designation, that's your identity. By the obedience of Jesus Christ, we don't belong to the category of sinners. We belong to a new category, the justified. We have a new status, righteous, a new identity, saints, new reality, children of God, new destiny, eternal life. Those are things that are actually true of you. It's not just a pastor trying to make you feel better. It's actually true. True in Jesus. All because of the obedience of the one man. Now, so what? Let's wrap with that. So what? Well, man, that makes all the difference in the world. See, friends, this is the foundation for a life of assurance and joy and peace, no matter what's happening. It, this grounds your assurance. You can stop flailing about in your guilt and your fear and your shame. And, and you, you can stand up and stand on the rock of the obedience of the one man, Jesus, to whom you belong. If you, if you think, what was Peter walking on when he was walking on the water? Have you ever thought about that? He's not walking on the water. You can't walk on water. He's walking on the rock of God's faithfulness and love in Jesus Christ. He's, he's walking on the rock of Jesus Christ. What's holding him up literally? Jesus. Jesus literally is holding him up. 
And the moment Peter took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the wind and the waves, that's when he began to sink. See, friends, it's the same in our life. We, what's holding us up? It's not your efforts. It's not even, in, in some sense, your faith. What's holding you up is the rock of Christ's obedience. It's an objective reality. It really happened, and it was offered up on the cross, and it's given to you as a free gift. So stop flailing about and stand up. Stand up. Stand on the rock. Right? Fix your hope for your hope and your confidence and your identity on Jesus and on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have the obedience of the one man be the rock on which you live. That's the first thing it's going to do, this truth. It's going to give you courage as a saint, to live like a saint. And it's going to give you compassion for lost people. Every person you meet is born under the headship and condemnation of Adam. Adam is all they know, and Adam is all they will ever know unless someone talks to them about Jesus. And God's called us to be the church that talks to the world about this new man and the obedience of this new man, a new, a new Adam, a better second Adam who gives righteousness and life to everyone who receives him in faith. Friends, this, this truth seals our assurance, our identity. Justification is not just this difficult theological doctrine. It, it, it is the glorious work of God that, that becomes the ground beneath your feet. And you can live there. You can walk there. You can walk free from your fear and you can walk into joy and peace and assurance as you stand in grace and stand on the rock of Christ's righteousness. Remember what Jesus said to Peter when he began to sink? What did Jesus say? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What does Jesus say to us today? Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Look at the rock. Stand on the rock. Look to me. Remember who you are. Remember what I've done. And then walk. Walk on home to him. Amen. Father, I, I just thank you so much for the profound truth of the gospel. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and the insight and clarity you gave to him. Lord, give that insight and clarity to us. We heard a lot this morning. Lord, I just pray that this truth would be fixed in our mind that, that if we are in Jesus Christ, we stand and we walk and we live upon the rock of his obedience, a perfect obedience that can never, ever be diminished or taken away. And that all the favor and the blessing of God that we hope for comes to us through that beautiful obedience. Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves as saints Saints who still sin, yes, but saints nonetheless who one day will sin no more because of the obedience of Christ. And may we, Lord, live together as saints, husbands and wives and children and parents and, and friends and co-workers, church members. May we live as saints, people who've been forgiven so much and have been rescued out of our bondage to Adam and brought into life in Jesus. And may, Lord, Lord, these truths become the truths upon which we, we walk and in which we live. And, and may the identity that we have in Jesus become the formative identity of our life until we walk 
finally into our eternal home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. Let's celebrate it as we sing. said, Amen. Receive the blessing purchased by the blood of Christ and based on his beautiful obedience. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.